Welcome to the Catch the Fire Church podcast. We're so glad you're joining us, and we hope you're encouraged by this message. Come on, praise the Lord. Wow, it's such a joy to be here. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. Man, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much, uh, Jess and Aaron, for inviting me to share with you guys community. And I just want to say I love Catch the Fire and the many, many years of laboring here in the RDU. And uh, I said this morning, uh, I believe that, um, that this is just the beginning for this community. And uh, I believe God is doing something special in our time and in our generation. As Jess mentioned, I'm one of the leaders of Ignite Movement our heart to see campuses, college campuses, transformed by the reality of the gospel. And over the last two years, we have seen some of the most extraordinary kingdom momentum on college campuses. Many of you guys may have heard of the Asbury revival uh, that happened last fall. And uh, I mean, since then, I mean, there's been, you know, hundreds of thousands of students have been back on their campus across America. And in the collegiate space, this year has been one of the most record-breaking year of salvations and baptisms and young people giving their lives to Jesus. Come on. And I, yeah, and I, I believe that Asbury was just a signpost that this is the beginning. It wasn't the end of a thing. It was the beginning of a thing. And so I believe this is the time to be alive. Come on. I believe this is the time to not be sleep but to be alive and active in what God is doing in our day. I mean, there are some historic things that have happened over the last four or five years. And I believe uh, the Lord is just saying, hey, I'm, I'm moving. I'm moving. Come and move with me. And so, again, it is a joy to be here, and I'm excited to share this morning. And I say this everywhere I go. Uh, that my hope and my prayer is that none of us will leave the same way that we enter. You know, because there's something that happens, and just hear this beyond the cliche, there's something that happens when we are in the presence of God together. And anytime we are in his presence, there is opportunity for transformation. Because he is the God of transformation. He is the God that touches us and we never are the same again. And that presence, Jesus Christ, is here in among us. And so I pray that we will just kind of just lean into the awareness of his presence. And it won't be just a passing thought or intellectual awareness, uh, but it will be a reality. Because the truth is, Jesus is more real than any person, anything, any tangible thing that you can touch or discern with your senses. He is more real, and his desire is to deeply permeate us. And, uh, and I pray that his word today will, will serve as transformation in our journey of sanctification. So about four years ago, I was walking at NC State campus, and I saw a student uh, sitting, eating lunch, and the Lord highlighted him to me. 
And my heart was just racing. And I, I knew what this meant at that time. Whenever my heart started racing, when I saw a person, I knew the Lord was like, start a conversation. Um, but very often do he tell me exactly what I'm supposed to say. So it doesn't make the invitation appealing at all. But anyway, I went and I said, hey, I know you don't know me at all. Then this is completely random. Uh, well, it may seem random, but uh, I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you and he has an amazing plan for your life. And his eyes started to water and he looked at me and says, thank you so much. I need it to hear that today. And I began to share other things that the Lord was placing on my heart to share with him. And as I uh, left that conversation, I left very conflicted. Like I, in one hand, I, I was excited. He was open, his heart was open and receptive to the gospel. And, uh, and that brought me to tears. Uh, but, but the other hand, I was, I was conflicted because as I saw him, I, I saw hundreds of thousands of more young people like him on campuses in cities across America and across the world who is just longing for someone to walk in simple obedience to the Father's voice to say, hey, that guy there, that girl there. And it reminded me, it reminded me of John 5 when um, every year it says that the angels will come and they will stir the waters and the first ones to jump in will be healed. And then you have this people of, of sick and lame and deaf and they're all here in, in this climate of anxiety and stress. And will this be my day of breakthrough? Will this be the hour of breakthrough? And, and they're all over here and they're looking at this phenomenon that is occurring. But little do they know that walking among them is Jesus, the breakthrough they're seeking. But nobody's eyes is on him. <laughs> I mean, everybody, they're, they're, they're over here. It's, it's, the, it's the phenomenon. It's, it's the speaker in town. It's the revival. It's the worship team that's coming through. But among them was Jesus walking breakthrough, walking healer, the walking deliverer. And it paints two pictures of revival. It's, it's the outpouring that comes, phenomenon, and I believe we're in that hour. But then it's that personal revival of walking in a spirit of breakthrough. And so Jesus, he sees this guy, and he starts a conversation with him, and he says, do you want to be healed? And the guy, obviously not knowing who he was talking to, said, of course I want to be healed, but every time I try to jump in, someone jumps in in front of me. <laughs> and Jesus was like, dude, do you want to be healed? <laughs> and Jesus healed this guy. And then later on in that scripture, in that passage in John 5, Jesus gave what I believe the best definition of revival. He says, they ask him, why do you heal and do these things? He says, I only do what I see the Father do. And so Jesus' simple obedience to the Father's voice in that moment highlighted an individual, and it changed his life forever. That type of sensitivity to the leadership of the voice of the Father. And so my heart was conflicted. Jesus, where are the laborers? 
I began to think about the passage in Matthew 9 when Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Come on. So walking back to my car, I began to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus, it seems like the culture of our day is winning. Where is the church? Where is the laborers? Is there any hope? And God spoke these words to me, and it changed everything for me. He says, Nico, I'm not just raising up powerful people that's going to change the world. I'm raising up powerful communities that's going to change the world. And I believe that a person can spark revival or awakening, but it will take a community to sustain a move of God. I believe God is not just raising up those who herald the gospel, but I believe God is raising up houses that is embodying the gospel and living it out. And so this shifted everything for me, God. This was the beginning of God reshaping my ecclesiology, my understanding of the significance of the church and spiritual family and community. And so I started to embark on a theological journey of understanding what this meant through Scripture. And there was a lot of themes that stood out to me. There themes regarding the role of church and transformation themes around prayer and missional living and the gospel and body and works of mercy and reconciliation and renewal and revival in cities. But the one word that stood out and screamed to me the loudest was the word behold. And this is what I want to talk about this morning is what it looks like in beholding Christ together as a community. Psalms 34, 3, the psalmist David, he writes, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David most certainly knew the value of community with God, but he also knew the value of community with each other. Both are important. Both are essential. But they do not offer the same thing. David knew that there were certain truths and transformation that could only be cultivated in his secret place, a life of spending alone with God. And there were certain truths and transformation that can only be cultivated in his life by spending time with God's people. So in Psalms 34, 3, he invites others in his pursuit of beholding God. Come. And magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This was not a matter of preference. This was not a matter of just necessity, although it is necessary. It was a matter of intent and original design. We not only need community, we were created for community. So something I observed in our Western church culture today is that we have lost the art of corporate spiritual formation. We have lost the art of corporate beholding God together. And what I mean by this is often we come in settings like this and we hear the word of God preached and taught to be heard and applied by the individual but neglect it to be cultivated and embodied 
by the entire community. And so instead, we have reduced our corporate responsibility to embody truth as a family and to magnify and exalt God together, not just in song and worship, but also in the laying down of our lives for each other in the context of community. We have reduced that call and responsibility to an individualistic a la carte Christianity, where we get to pick and choose our likens, often separate from the full counsel of God. Uh, many culture commentators, they call this generation the most individualistic generation that's ever existed in human history. I was just reading from a culture commentary recently. He says that the defining trait of America is radical individualism. Some call this generation the me, me, me generation, the I generation, or the selfie generation. About a year ago, I was doing some research on statistics uh, on the mental impact of selfies, and it's documented there are over 93 million selfies taken a day, and that people's obsession with taking selfies and posting on social media has become such an addiction Many have classified it as a as a have diagnosed it as a mental disorder called selfitis. <laughs> it's the obsessive desire to take photos of oneself and post it on social media. Now, maybe a few of us in this room suffer from selfitis, but maybe on the other end of the spectrum, we have a compulsive a compulsive desire to talk about ourselves all the time. Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, regardless, this paints a real picture of where we are as a society and shed light of the hyper and radical individualistic culture that we live in. I want to define individualism for us. It's defined as the ideology and the promotion of independence and self-reliance. It advocates that the interests of the individual should take precedent over a community, state, or social group. It is said to be a byproduct of postmodern culture. It's a way of thinking and a way of living that says we can have the king, the kingdom of God, without the king. And that we can have the crowns and success of life without the self-denial of the cross. That we can conquer and create without the help and the involvement of the creator. And so, in essence, it's a way of living that says that we do not need God, that, that we have come to where we are in life because of our hard work and our experience and our educations and our connections. And maybe it's not communicated that bluntly or directly. I mean, who does that, right? Uh, but indirectly is communicated through our overconfidence in ourselves, as though that we have arrived to where we are through our own strength. And stress and worrying could be said as could be considered expression of individualism because we communicate that we don't need God simply by refusing to invite him into the process. And this type of individualism is not an individualism that's just common in our culture It is an individualism that is common in our church. When we see scripture, 
and we see biblical history, we see something completely different from this narrative. Jesus says in Luke 9, he says, and this is my main text here, he says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciples must first deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the world but to lose his soul? In this passage, Jesus is saying something that is so dynamic and so radical. First, he opens the door wide open to anyone. Anyone can be my disciple. That's you. That's me. That's your coworker. That's your liberal boss. That's your conservative neighbor. He opens the door wide. Now, this was not common during this time. A rabbi, that his disciples were ones who were considered the best and the brightest. You look at the portfolio of many of the disciples, you can tell they weren't necessarily the best and the brightest in their time. So this is why this statement is so radical, that Jesus opens the door to anyone. He says, anyone who wants to be my disciple. But then he says, but the door is wide open. But once you get in, the way is very narrow. You can be my disciple, but it will cost you something. It will cost you your love for yourself. It will cost you your pride in your heart. It will cost you an old way of living. It will cost you and bring you into a new identity. And so there are many that want to be disciples of Christ, but there are very few who are willing to take the narrow way. And there are many who profess they are disciples of Christ, but have not committed their lives to a life of dying to themselves and living for the purpose of our King. And so Jesus expounds, he says, those who desire to preserve their life, their way of living will eventually lose it. All of our efforts of self-preservation, whether it's the accumulation of status, wealth, reputation, the American dream, will leave us to emptiness if he is not in and through it all. But those who desire to lose their life, their old way of living, their old way of thinking, will save themselves. Those who embrace the reality of what the gospel of Jesus have accomplished for them and to live in that truth by dying to their flesh and being and living according to the way of Christ will save their lives. Here, Jesus is presenting two kingdoms. He is drawing a line in the sand. I know in our day and hours, it seems like the line between Christ and culture have become very blurry. When we come back to the truth of Scripture, we see there is a clear line. And in this passage, as Jesus is saying, whoever wants to be my disciple can be my disciple as long as they come in and deny themselves, 
take up their cross and follow me. He's drawing a, a line in the sand and presenting two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of death and a kingdom of life. A kingdom that promotes uh, self-rule and self-govern in a kingdom that promotes submission to Christ. A kingdom that promotes independence and individualism and free expression in a kingdom that promotes interdependence on Christ and his body and his mission. Jesus is presenting two kingdoms. And I find it interesting that the guiding value of the Satanic church is this. Do as thy will is the whole law. It's interesting that the enemy knows that the only thing he has to do to get us to worship him is to get us to worship ourselves. But Paul says something, come on, Paul says something completely different here. He says, he says, as for me, I, may I not boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. Jesus says to be a follower of him, we must embrace self-denial and find ourselves in him and in him alone. Paul expounds in his letter and builds this out more in Colossians 1.13. He says, for he, Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I don't want us to miss the point that the kingdom of God is made up of the family of God. And not only have we been saved from our sins, we were saved into a family of God. God decided in advance, Ephesians 1, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. One of the chief things that Jesus accomplished when he redeemed us is not only did he saved us, but he restored our capacity to love one another. He restored our capacity for community. God not only created us for community, he redeemed us for community. And so when we look at the early church, what did this look like? When we look at the original context and audience of all of the scripture, we see that the word of God was not primarily written to a person. That the word of God was not primarily written to an individual. That the word of God was written to a people. The Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the New Testament, city churches, and we have exceptions of certain letters written to pastoral letters written to individual. But the word of God was meant, yes, for personal sanctification, but it was also meant for a corporate sanctification, a corporate beholding of Christ that transformed us not just as an individual, but as a people. Example of this in Colossians 1, Paul 
tells the church of Colossia, writes to the church of Colossia. He says, I pray this prayer for you without ceasing, that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with spiritual wisdom, patience, and endurance. Now, this will make a great morning personal devo prayer, and I pray this prayer often over myself and my family. But the reality is that this prayer was not necessarily written for an individual. It was written for a community. Paul is saying, this is my prayer for you, the church of Colossia, the people that live in this city, that you will be filled with God's, the knowledge of God's will for you in this city, how he is calling you to live as a community in the city of Colossia. I believe Jesus is saying the same thing to his church today. And the reality is, is that not only have we have been born for such a time as this, we have been born for such a place as this. In Acts, Paul says that in preaching to the the church of Athens, he says that, that God had predetermined our time of history that we will be born in the boundary lines in which we live. You were born for such a time as this, but you have been born for such a place as this as well. And this is what Paul is saying to the church of Colossia. My prayer for you is that you won't walk in a lack of vision for how I'm calling you to be a people to reach your city, but that you'll be filled with spiritual wisdom, that you won't even depend on your own wisdom and experience, but you will lean in to the wisdom of heaven, the blueprint of heaven for your city. And that you will have prophetic understanding. And it's going to be hard because you're dealing with people. (laughs) So I pray that you be filled with patience and endurance. Lord, we need that, right? Come on. And so the intent was not for it to be lived out by a single person or a handful of people within the church, but as a community as a whole. For their intentional gospel living to be a corporate witness to their city and culture of what Jesus looks like through a people. I want to share a quote from a theologian named Douglas Jones He's address, addressing the same, this topic here from the focal point of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, followers of the Sermon on the Mount have long noted how anti-individualistic it is. People who finally stumble or drag, are dragged to the way of the cross often attempt to live this sermon on their own. They might repudiate mammon and begin trying to live for the homeless. They might give up on savings and live simply for themselves. They might refuse violence and give more charity to the poor. But in a very important way, this misses Christ's teaching. The sermon is not a code for individual behavior. It is given to the church, and the church has to take lead in living it in community. People who try to do it, and uh, people who try it on their own quickly burn out. Because it is made to crush the individual, but give life to the church. Because one person cannot live the life of the Trinity and the church as being a representative of Christ on the earth. 
and all the gifts in the body parts are crucial to sustaining the way of the cross. Here, Jones is emphasizing the importance of communities beholding the word of the Lord together and the commands of Christ together. Now, this was not a new concept for this is not a new concept for the church. This is, has always been the historic way for the church in the first two centuries of the early church. The word of God was read out loud. And as the word of God was read out loud, they will look at each other and they will say, now how do we live? The word of God will be read out loud and says, now, what does this mean for us? What does this look like in your home? What does this look like in your marriage? What does this look like for us as a spiritual community in this city and in this community? What does this look like for us? And if we take a look at history will discover that the most powerful communities that have made the most impactful spiritual contributions to their cities and nations are the communities who step into a corporate beholding of God and of his kingdom and who married themselves to his ways and cultivated until it became a reality of who they were as a people. Think about the Moravian community, a community of people who, who covenant to pray and to labor for revival. And they gave themselves to praying day and night and for over 100 years, sustained 24-7 prayer. And the more they prayed, the more that God gripped their heart for their generation. Gripped their heart so much that he began to shoot them out and they became the answers to their own Prayers, many of them uh, selling themselves into slavery to share the gospel. I think about the Holy Club, three college students at Oxford University in the early 1700s, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, who gave themselves to extreme prayer and fasting and seeking God on campus. And little did they know as they were seeking God and engaging with God in a particular place at a particular time and being particular people, little did they know that God was going to shoot them out as arrows and they would change the expression of Christianity in a generation. John Wesley, the lead of the Methodist movement, his brother Charles Wesley writing Hundreds and thousands of hymns that would be sung in churches and homes all across the world. George Whitfield, who will come to America and lead, help lead the Great Awakening. It started with a community who says, we are going to behold God together. We're not just going to gather and do the, the thing that Christians and sing a song and shake hands and go back home. We are going to lean into what he is saying. And we're going to keep each other accountable in our pursuit of looking like him together. Think about the Haystack prayer meeting, five college students praying under a tree and talking through the Great Commission 
and their heart for the nation. And all of a sudden, a storm came. The wind is blowing. It's lightning. It's thundering. And they run to take shelter under a haystack, which visually, I do not know what that looks like. (laughs) But nevertheless, and under that haystack, as the rain is beating down and the lightning is flashing and it's thundering, and they're praying and they're discussing God's heart for the nations. And they begin to, to, to be gripped by the reality that there are certain people in places around the world who have never heard the name, have never heard the name of Jesus. And they begin to dream together. And they begin to imagine what would world evangelization look like in our generation. And they begin to think, is this even possible? Can this even happen? Can we even set our hearts and minds to do something so big? A small freshman guy, they said he had a little squeaky voice. He stood up and he said, we can do this if we will. And that was the beginning of a student volunteer mission movement where Thousands, over 200,000 young people will give their lives to missions, the best and the brightest of Ivy League University, will go overseas with their coffins knowing they will never return back home. And they reached so many geopolitical spaces throughout the world. It started with the community, saying we're just not going to do church as usual We're going to lean into the voice of God. What is he speaking? What is he saying? What is he calling us to do? How does this look like going after it together? These are communities that did not exist for themselves. It's a community that exists to see the kingdom of God, the reality of heaven, invade their world, and their generation. These individuals, this community was not a community of people that was just individually apprehended, but was an entire community apprehended. You know, you always tell those churches, which is most churches in America, you have those few on fire people for Jesus, right? <laughs> the prayer team, <laughs> typically. <laughs> You know, a community apprehended is a community apprehended, not just a few people. It's a community that's so apprehended that the culture of the kingdom of God becomes the prevailing culture. Anything outside of that reality is beginning to suffocate. That when people step into a community that is so saturated and permeated by the realities of heaven, that idols are confronted. And you either let the idol fall at the feet of Jesus or you leave. I heard it says that when the glory of God comes, you either hit the floor or the door. Hmm. I believe the Lord is calling churches to look like heaven. I believe the Lord is calling communities to, to drip with the residue of heaven. That when people walk in, they fall to their faces because 
It's the only thing they can do. There's a culture bigger than the culture outside. There's a culture that is stronger than the culture of this world. It's the culture of the kingdom of God and it's crashing in. And I believe, I believe God is looking for a people. I remember uh, when I was in high school and, and the Lord began to grip my heart for my small little town, little Washington. Come on. And, and I remember the Lord began to grip my heart and I would go to church afterwards, after school, and I would just pray for my city. And I remember, I remember one time praying, I had this, as I had this like vision where I saw it was as Jesus was walking the streets of our small little town and he was knocking on doors. Saying, hey, let me in. Let me in. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. But where does the son of man have to lay his head? Where he resides, his kingdom comes. His home releases his kingdom. And God is looking for a community that will covet in prayer and worship and pursuit of the reality and the truth of his word and to embody that and to behold it. Where they become truly a kingdom people. And as we look at these communities, there is a common denominator. Each of these communities, they embrace first self-denial. Say, I'm going to walk through that open door. I'm going to take the narrow way. They gave themselves to the shared purpose and interest of building God's kingdom in their city, in their generation, not alone but together as a spiritual family. Number two, they embraced voluntary dependency. They did not trust in themselves to accomplish the purpose of God. They trusted in God. Uh, Psalms David talks about the weaned child, the child who no longer is weaned from his mother milk, no longer needs his mother milk, but yet still chooses to rest in his mother's bosom. He says, oh, Israel, put your hope in God. Voluntary dependency is when everything is going great and you feel like you don't need them. <laughs> you still choose dependency. So Matthew 5, reality, Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed those who acknowledge their need for him. Blessed are those who realize that outside of him they are nothing and they, their lives are worthless. It's, it's getting under that reality. That it is Christ and it is Christ alone. It is him who I live, move, and have my being. And that when I step out of that reality, when I step out of that truth, I become worthless to the world. But when I step into it, it is he who gives me strength. When I step into it is he who have saved and redeemed me. When I step into that, that these, these powers and is hidden in earth and vessel, but it's not power of my own. 
and I step into that truth, he says, here is the kingdom. They embrace self-denial. They embrace voluntary dependency. And they embrace a corporate beholding of God. They dedicated themselves to beholding Christ together. It was expressed through their prayers together, their songs of worship, their response to Scripture, and the movement of the Spirit of God among them. All of this is completely opposite from the individual and postmodern culture we find ourselves living in today that says instead and says that we don't need God or that we can do this without him. But instead of that, we're saying, we need you, God. Not only do we need you, we don't want to do life without you. And so I believe this is a call for the church in this day, in this hour. It is to refocus our gaze. I believe God is inviting us to allow him to enlarge our hearts. He cares about you, but he also cares about your neighbor. (laughs) He cares about your neighbor, but he also cares about your city. In every place that your feet is planted, he has given you kingdom authority. Come on, Matthew 16. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. If spiritual awakening, revival is going to happen in a city or a campus, it's not going to happen through the mayor or the city hall or whatever. It's going to happen through the church. The church has the keys to the city. I heard a radical interpretation of that scripture. It says, what you allow, I will allow. And what you don't allow, I won't allow. If it's going to happen, it's going to be through us. Posturing ourselves under the reality of heaven. What is he saying? What is he doing? What is he calling us to do? And this is what I feel this morning. I feel that the Lord is reigniting in our hearts a longing and a desire, his longing, his desire for renewal and for revival. This is something that many of you may have contended for years, and maybe this is a whole new concept for some. I believe there is a fresh invitation this day and in this hour to be gripped with the longings of God, to be gripped with the, the, the desire of God. This is a call into friendship. I mean, every time I think of God has a longing and desire, my heart just, I, I just, my heart gets weepy. So I'm thinking, oh, my friend has a longing. My friend has a desire. Your friend has a longing. Your child has a longing. Your, your family member has a longing. There is there's something inside of you that rises up to, to want to meet the need. And when Jesus says, will you tarry with me for an hour? When he says, will the Son of Man return, will you find faith in the earth? When he says, foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but where the Son of Man? I mean, it should grip our hearts. 
that he has a longing, that he is wanting his people to partner with him. It's the invitation to friendship because friends disclose secrets to friends. And a large heart is a heart where our eyes is not just on ourselves anymore. Our eyes is gripped with what he desires. And as we lean our chest, our ear against his chest, we begin to hear his heartbeat. And we realize that his heartbeat is one with the harvest. His heartbeat is big. That he cares for us, but he cares about our campus and our city and our neighbor and our co-workers. That he cares. And I believe he's inviting us to a oneness of heart. A oneness of desire. A oneness of longing. So as we just end our time this morning, if, if, if you are in the room this morning, you say, I just want a fresh touch and gripping of God's longing and desire. Identify, identify where you are. Identify the, the campus, the city, the workplace, the community, the neighborhood. Jesus, grip my heart. That's one. Number two, if you feel in this room, I, I, I just want to break up with this, this hyper-individualistic culture that have just gotten on me. I, I, just, I want to repent, and I just want to say, Jesus, my life is not my own. I give it to you again, if that's you. And then thirdly, it's, I believe God is doing something special and unique in this house in this place, in this community. Maybe you want to, I, I want to get behind the vision of catch the fire for the RDU. I want to lean in to what God is speaking over this community, in this house, and, and not just try to do life on my own, but I want to do it in community here. I want to recommit to this beholding God as a spiritual family. There's a lot of few options there. <laughs> Wherever you fall in the area, I just want to invite you. You're welcome to come up, and the prayer team will come up. And, and for those who particularly, and I hope this is okay, and those particularly who, who say, I, I just want a fresh gripping of the longing of God, I will, I will love to pray with you as well. Thank you so much for joining us. There are so many opportunities to grow, connect, and be encouraged. To learn more, visit ctfraleigh.com and follow us on social media. Thank you so much for being part of the family. We are so thankful for you.